from WBUR Boston and Slate. Hello, and welcome to The Checkup, health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg, co-host of WBUR's Common Health blog. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog. Hello, Rachel. Hey, Carrie. So today, Rachel and I look into the college student's brain. A kind of scary place. I don't know if I'd say scary, but definitely vulnerable. True. Vulnerable to several major mental health disorders that actually peak around the ages between 18 and 21. College time. Exactly. Just the time that kids are going off on their own to college and navigating new unfamiliar terrain, new social interactions, new emotional territory. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of a perfect storm. Creating maximal emotional stress. I I read some of the statistics and they're mind-blowing. Let's hear. So, So overall, the rate of student psychiatric hospitalizations has tripled in the past 20 years. But okay, those are the extreme cases. Just on average, 50 to 60% of students develop some kind of psychiatric disorder during the college years. Wait, so that means developing some kind of mental health disorder is almost more the norm than the exception. Yes, it's not unusual at all. And about half of all college students say that they felt so depressed that they found it hard to function during the previous school year. Wow. My kids are still little. They're in grade school. But I can imagine that these kind of numbers might make parents sending their kids off to college extremely nervous and anxious themselves. Yes. So here they are launching their kids into adulthood, true independence for the first time. And they're probably expecting that the school they're sending them to is well equipped to handle any mental health difficulties that might come up. Right, they're they're used to it. Right, they have it all the time. But apparently that's not always the case. So here's an example. This is the story of a senior at a really top university. Her name is Victoria. And she had some social anxiety problems going way back, actually, all the way to middle school. And her parents told her that when she got to college, she would be turning over a new leaf socially. She would start a whole new social life, and it would be easier for her to interact with people. Yeah, that's what they say. Well, what she found when she got to college was the opposite, that, in fact, her social anxiety was getting worse and worse, really almost unbearable, so that by the time she hit sort of the beginning of her sophomore year, she was really in what you could consider a full-blown mental health crisis. I didn't want to seek help for a very long time. It took me until even maybe a month or two into my sophomore year. It got to a point where it wasn't just social anxiety. It was was even more than that. I couldn't walk down the street without thinking that people weren't pointing and laughing at me. Okay, so you're having this kind of Paranoia. I was very paranoid. But how else would you describe the fabric of your days Mm -hmm. that showed you that you really needed help? My day might have looked pretty normal to most people. Um, I went to class every day. I wasn't slipping on my grades. I was still trying my best, but I was more anxious in everything that I did. I was nervous. I don't think I ever looked happy. Um, I ate a lot of meals by myself, even though my friends were sometimes available. I didn't try to seek them out. And instead of um, going to dining halls, I I took food back to my room and ate there by myself and did work. And I tried to convince myself that I was doing that because I had a rigorous semester, but it really wasn't that. I was nervous about sitting in a dining hall alone or somebody has, I mean, it got even so bad that eventually I started to rationalize that maybe somebody had put a video camera somewhere in my room and was videotaping me. And and my mom kept trying to explain to me, no, that's really no, there's no way that there is a video camera, but I couldn't shake it. 
it was just very scary. And so my mom finally suggested, you know, I don't I don't think you can do this anymore. I, I you need to seek some sort of help. So, Victoria, let me shift to your parents, who I should mention have asked that we not use their names in the interest of privacy. OK, so. It turns out that you've sent your daughter to this fantastic school and then you find yourself in the situation in which she's having problems. And what do you do? I mean, how does that feel? We were constantly walking that fine line of trying to encourage her to seek counseling, but also recognizing that she wanted autonomy around this. So it it was pretty frightening to see all of it. And in hindsight, I think that we may have magnified her experience because we did say to her, you're going to have a new start in school, new friends, this is your time to go. And you know what? It is a new time, but a lot of freshman experience, anxiety, other problems can be aggravated. Yeah, I think we might have in part set her up to fail a little bit, but also uh, in particular, I wasn't as helpful as I could have been, maybe wow. still not. I had had a very good experience at school. and, and like The same my, school, right? Like my wife, um, you know, was looking forward to this being a great new start for our daughter. And so, obviously, when she was so sad about it and it wasn't going well, it was very disappointing. Mm-hmm. Um, because I tend to be a, 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 a big problem solver. And so I go right to the problem and here's how you fix it and this is what you need to do and go do it and take care of it. And that's not what she needed at all, and still not what she needs. And in particular, we missed one opportunity when her roommate was asked to leave. That was a pretty frightening experience. Her fear was being alone, and all of a sudden, she's alone in her room every night. The school, While the school focused on the roommate's issues, they didn't focus on what she had gone through with this roommate and then being left alone. Okay, so beginning of sophomore year, it reaches the point where you say, this is not tolerable. So what did you do? At first, I was really, I, f- I felt there was no way that I could be that person that that sought help. You know, I was, you know, at a top school. I was really successful. I mean, I'm very successful academically. I, I've only gotten A's my entire time. But I didn't realize that it was still okay to have problems and to accept that and by the time I was seeking help, I found out that all but one of my closest friends, and I have about 10, eight to 10 close friends at some point sought services. So I made an appointment with the services that my school offers. You can have seven appointments with them per year. So I saw this person twice. I really liked her. I thought that she was very easygoing. She was very young. She was uh, definitely perfect for a university setting. Um, And she definitely helped me. uh, But very soon she said, you know, I think we should find you a provider outside. Uh, Because they limit you to the number of appointments you can have and you can't form a long-term relationship. Your person you were seeing before might not always be available. And this person said, we we need to look into long-term options for you. And so I did. um, My mother and I looked for and made appointments with therapists who are in the area. Now, there, there's a thriving therapy community around my college. Probably all colleges. Uh, probably actually. every college. Yeah. There's quite a few people, quite a few options, and they're always booked. So first of all, did you get a diagnosis? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, my therapist thought that I had obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was sitting there thinking, okay, 
Maybe I have obsessive compulsive disorder. Maybe I don't really need a label on this. I mean, the diagnosis itself is stigmatizing. In either case, she told me to possibly seek some medicine, and um, so I was prescribed a low dose of Prozac and uh, started taking it, and I've increased my dosage, but um, it's probably been the most useful thing for me so far. So Prozac has been more useful than talk therapy. Um, There's no way that you can medicate without talking and and having a professional um, who's there for you, but I think I saw the biggest change in myself when I was taking medication uh, in that basically I can go to a party now and not think that people are staring at me. And that's something that, you know, was a huge change from sophomore year. I look at myself sophomore year thinking I would walk with my head down looking at the sidewalk and walk with my head down in buildings and try not to make eye contact with people. And now I'm much more willing to do that, even though, you know, it's still harder for me, I think, than maybe my parents or maybe some of my friends. It's it's been a huge change for me. So, Carrie, I think while the specifics of Victoria's story are unique, the the overall picture is fairly common. Right, Rachel. So the question becomes, what are kids and also we parents supposed to do when it becomes clear that this transition, which is naturally fraught with all kinds of potential issues, is becoming something more like a full-blown mental illness. What do we do? I talked to Dr. Gene Berezin about that. He's a child psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. And he painted a fairly disturbing picture of what's going on at colleges when it comes to mental health services. The data is pretty shocking. I mean, about 50% of college students will have a psychiatric disorder. Wow. The most common ones, anxiety problems, top of the list. Depression comes second. But then alcohol, binge drinking and substance use. Right. Eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault. One in five college students will report either an attempt or an actual sexual assault during their college years, Mm. and post-traumatic stress disorder. So there are a lot of problems that these kids will have. In addition, there's things that aren't quite reaching the mark of a psychiatric disorder. There's the stress about relationships. There's the stress of academic performance. There's the stress of being separated from home for the first time. Right. I mean, you have this perfect storm, which is this is the age where these disorders flourish, plus you have all of these unknown factors. You're leaving home, you're with a new group of people, the pressure of academic work, the pressure of social interactions. I mean, it's amazing anyone gets through college unscathed, really. Well, you're expected to be an adult, and and the college students themselves expect themselves to be independent, self-sufficient, have the answers, and they don't. And unfortunately, they don't have their parents or other adults around them as much to consult. Right. And unfortunately, as much as colleges try to help, and I know they do, there's just inadequate resources to give them the kind of guidance that they would need in very difficult and unusual and brand new situations. Right. Well, we heard Victoria's story. She she was told she could have up to seven appointments with a therapist. Is that a typical number? It really varies. Some have 12, mm-hmm. and some have, if we're luxurious, you know, 20. Mm-hmm. But even that, as we heard from Victoria, she really required regular counseling for a long-term basis. Mm-hmm. And even the, even the college counselors said, you know, we can't provide you enough. So college services are really insufficient. And as we also heard, the outside resources 
are uh, few and far between. We look at the high numbers of kids that have problems, 50 mm-hmm. to 60 percent. Right. And only about one in four seek help, in part because they don't know what their problems are, or they don't understand how to get their help, or they feel that there's a stigma related to help. Can I just, on the stigma issue, I mean, I understand stigma, and we heard Victoria speaking about how pervasive it remains, but I grew up in New York. Everyone was in therapy, and I mean, (laughs) it's the year 2013. Is there still really that level of fear and embarrassment about seeing a therapist or being depressed? You bet. Not everybody is from New York and goes to their analyst. I, I realize that. <laughs> but mental health is uh, lacking in education and psychiatric disorders. Just the word, psychiatric disorder or right. mental illness. Right, because if these kids had diabetes, nobody would care that they're getting insulin shots. You wouldn't hesitate. You wouldn't hesitate. Right. But not only the label of a psychiatric disorder, but taking a medication are both seen as a personal moral weakness in society. 20 to 30 percent of medical students will have psychiatric disorders, Mm -hmm. and few will admit them. And even if they're going into psychiatry over the 30-some years I've been a program director, I know they won't say, even to us, that they're seeing somebody. Wow. Because it's, it might be a black mark right. on their record. Right. Will they get a job? How will they be accepted? Right. So what are the universities doing to fix this? Well, number one, they're in a tough situation. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among college students. There are about 1,100 deaths a year. And the number one cause is motor vehicle accidents, some of which may well be suicides or under the influence of alcohol and drugs. Now, colleges are aware of this, but they've got a problem. Few colleges actually have mental health education for parents, students, and also for faculty, dorm leaders, and administrators. Right. And there's a lack of personnel. The fact is is that there are only 35,000 psychiatrists in the country. There are only 7,000 trained in child and adolescent psychiatry, which is really what you need for, for college students because they have problems that require people thinking developmentally. Imagine 7,000 for 20 to 30 million kids right. and probably about... 10 million of those are college-age students. There was a study of the directors of college and university counseling services in 2012 that showed that for small colleges, the ratio of student to paid counselor was one to about 650. Right. Mid colleges, about one to 1,200. And large universities, one to almost 3,000. Now, how can you possibly take care of 50% if your ratios are so low. The colleges, though, can't afford it. Mm -hmm. Number one, their insurance coverage won't pay for it. Well, let's talk about insurance for a moment. Are these kids typically insured, or is it all over the map? It's all over the map, but all colleges are required to provide student health insurance, which is typically pretty limited in terms of mental health benefits. Right, we heard the seven visits. And even outside insurance is very limited. So, for example, if you get the highest level of insurance, it's only 24 psychotherapy visits a year maximum. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the things Victoria mentioned, which I think is really important to point out, is that fortunately her parents had the means to cover the therapy sessions through insurance and maybe, you know, by, by paying. Not everyone does. Yes. So as a psychiatrist and a parent, what top five bits of advice do you have for parents sending their kids off to school when it comes to protecting their child's mental health? Well, I think the first one is mental health problems are very, very common 
hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Education and awareness, number one. And that begins in high school. Number two, awareness and understanding from the colleges of what they can and cannot do. The parents understanding that if there is a problem, they've got to work with the mental health services to get services outside of the college. Three is to understand the significant emotional impact on the kid and on themselves and to try to help support their individuality and their autonomy, but to give them support and guidance and not leave them hanging. I mean, as much as the kids might not want mom to text them, it's important for the parents to stay involved and for the parents to realize that, you know, this is normal. The lifetime chance of somebody having a mental health problem is about one in four. It's more common than any other medical issue, except maybe strep throat. Okay. But we're dealing with it as if it's something off the charts or out of the ordinary. I mean, we prepare for our kids' strep throats. We tell them, you know, get a throat swab and take antibiotics. So they should be aware of how common it is and how they need to be involved. Okay, Rachel, that makes total sense to me. And I would add that, you know, college kids aren't always kind to their bodies. They tend to stay up all night to experiment with drugs and alcohol on top of the incredible stresses of the workload that they have. And all of this put together can can potentially trigger a more serious mental health disorder, especially if the kid is already vulnerable. Right. I would definitely add to his tip teach your child how to get a good night's sleep. We know how kids just think they can be superhuman and exist on bad food and no sleep, which actually... And that's essentially what happened to an MIT student named Lydia, who blogged about what she called her mental health meltdown at school. All of us come in here, and freshman year, we play with our sleep schedules a bit to try and figure out how we can fit socialization and homework in, and we don't always manage to get sleep. Another thing is, I think a lot of us have an inflated perception of what average here is, and we feel when we start getting grades like B's or C's that, my goodness, I am doing so horribly here, when in fact a lot of people go through that. But you feel very alone because you you get this perception that you're the only one who's struggling in this way. So, Rachel, Lydia was able to get some help at MIT for her distress, right? Right. And just keep in mind that sometimes the kind of help these kids need is not necessarily traditional talk therapy, not necessarily drugs, although those obviously play a role. But in this case, Lydia just needed to connect with a grown-up on a topic that she loves. I have a fantastic dean in uh, student support services who uh, I think he he just really knows how I tick. One time I came in and I said, I'm so stressed out. I want to tell you all about how I'm stressed out. And we talked about genetics. And it was fun and it was really awesome. And I walked out thinking, oh, I feel just fine. And furthermore, I really love genetics. So, Rachel, I gather students from around the world responded to Lydia's blog post, which totally resonated with stressed out students everywhere. Right. It seems like when these kids connect with other students, either through social media or organized groups at school, and then they realize they're not alone, that takes a huge amount of the pressure off. Reading the comments on this blog has really helped me. For me, it was a little bit like a magic wand. It's people saying, well, 
I was not going to go to adjunct support services, but after reading this, I think I'm going to go ahead and do that and seek help. One thing I've discovered this semester is that if you are putting learning first and your health first, then people are really willing to work with you to make sure that you can learn, make sure that you can get everything done, even if it's a little overwhelming, without losing your health. Carrie, one thing Lydia's story highlights is that even today, when pretty much everyone you know has been in and out of therapy, Mm -hmm. there is still a stigma attached to seeking treatment. Right. Like we're still such a suck it up, pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of culture. But it's important to know that this is an illness. Like you can compare it to diabetes. You wouldn't be embarrassed to get insulin shots as a diabetic. So it should be the same for mental illness. It really should be. But the reality is we're not quite there yet. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Checkup. Join us next week when we investigate the claims of fitness programs. Like the insanity workout. And we talk to a doctor about lifestyle medicine and what the data really tell us about exercise and health. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our producer is George Hicks. The executive editor of WBUR.org is John Davidow. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. See you next week. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel.